Please bow your heads and join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, there's so many more words we want to say, more words we want to sing. But it's hard to top some of the things that have already been said and sung this morning. We do rejoice in your victory. We find hope and comfort in your atonement on the cross. And we anticipate that day when we will see you face to face and continue worshiping you for your grace, your power, your glory, knowing that it's by your work that we are saved. It's by your power that the enemy and death have been defeated. And it's your power, the same power that opened the tomb on Easter morning. That same power will raise us up to life as well. Lord, for those of us who know you, I pray that this hope and this faith would be strengthened today. And Lord, for some who may not know you, might they hear in our singing and in our preaching, may they hear the good news of the gospel, good news that is for all who will repent of sin and believe in Christ. We ask, Lord, now that you would speak to us through your word, that you would help us to see your glory today, and that we would go from here more in love with you, more convinced of your glory, more confident in your word. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. This morning's sermon is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27, the end of Matthew 27, and we'll be in Matthew 28 as well. Over the last number of months, we've been working through the Gospel of Luke, but today, being Easter, we're pivoting to Matthew's Gospel. And the title for this morning's sermon is The Resurrection Conspiracy. I don't often share the titles, but I liked this title, so I thought I would share it. It's The Resurrection Conspiracy. The term conspiracy theory has gotten a lot of traction over the last several years, hasn't it? Merriam-Webster defines conspiracy theory as a theory that explains an event or a set of circumstances as the result of a secret plot by usually powerful conspirators. And that phrase, conspiracy theory, has actually been turned into somewhat of a weapon. It's a way to dismiss questions, isn't it? It's a way to discredit certain people's conclusions. Using that phrase, conspiracy theory, often is really just a way to accuse the questioner of being paranoid. You know the stereotype of someone who's wearing a tinfoil hat and who is absolutely convinced that there's secret plots and powerful conspirators behind every blade of grass. And none of us want to be that paranoid individual. But the reason conspiracy theories get so much traction is because sometimes there are secret plots. Sometimes there are powerful conspirators who are pulling the strings behind the scenes. You see, human nature is deceitful. And human beings are easily deceived. So it can be difficult at times to determine who is telling the truth. Sometimes these conspiracy theories are harmless. They don't have a lot of impact. Maybe you heard the one this last year about the NFL being scripted, every play, every game. Maybe you've explored the conspiracy theory of did we really land on the moon or is this some elaborate hoax using Hollywood film techniques? And there's not a huge consequence to what you think about those things. But sometimes these conspiracy theories touch on sensitive issues inflammatory questions that actually have great importance and actually impact people's lives. For example, what are the true origins of the COVID-19 virus? Is there corruption in our electoral process? What's the real reason for wars in the Middle East or Ukraine? 
You didn't think we were going to talk about all that stuff today, did you? Well, we're not. (laughs) Because I want to talk about an even bigger conspiracy, a greater conspiracy that has more impact and has greater consequence than all those other conspiracy theories combined. It's a series of events that many have tried to explain in different ways, a series of events that impacts not just an economy or a nation or an election, a series of events that don't even just impact world history. It's a series of events that impacts eternity itself. I'm talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In Matthew's gospel, we're given insight into some secret meetings, into these corrupt officials. There's propaganda. Why is the tomb empty? What became of Jesus' body? Well, there's two stories that are swirling around in Jerusalem about this man named Jesus who was called the Christ. Some are saying that he rose from the dead, but others are saying that the disciples stole his body. The question is, which one is the conspiracy? Who is telling the truth? I want to look at three different scenes here in the end of Matthew's gospel and consider how the truth of the resurrection prevails over the conspiracies of man. Scene number one is in Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 62. And we could label this scene preventing a resurrection conspiracy. That's what's going on here. These people are trying to prevent a resurrection conspiracy. It says the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. As you all know, at this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is dead. It's the result of a concerted effort by these same Jewish authorities. They had been helped by an inside man, Judas, who's one of the 12 disciples, And he had betrayed Jesus to them. He had tipped them off about Jesus' location so that they could catch him alone, so that they could catch him at night, so that they could catch him outside of town where it would be very convenient and discreet and the crowds would not be able to interfere. These Jewish authorities then tried Jesus. They falsely condemned him in their own circles. They condemned him there for blasphemy, claiming to be the son of God. But then they turned him over to the Romans because they didn't have legal jurisdiction to execute him. And conveniently, their story changes when they bring Jesus before the Roman authorities. There they accuse him of insurrection. And they ended up getting their wish. Jesus was scourged. He was nailed to a cross. And there he laid down his life. And he died. But these religious leaders aren't done. They're still scheming. They're still working to manage things. They're still trying to control public perception. They're still pushing their agenda. Matthew says they meet here after the day of preparation, which means they're meeting and doing business here on the Sabbath. It's ironic, these men who accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, they have no problem making an exception for themselves. 
the saying goes, there ain't no rest for the wicked. Matthew tells us that it's the chief priests and it's the Pharisees that are conspiring together. It's interesting because the chief priests were usually from the Sadducee party, while the Pharisees were a competing rival group. But here we see a bipartisan effort. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, they were united in their efforts to oppose Jesus. They come together once again, and they appeal once again to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, Pilate knows that the real reason they arrested Jesus was because they were jealous. Chapter 27, verse 18 says, he knew they had arrested him out of envy. And Pilate has no interest in their debates. He has no interest in being used as a pawn for this Pharisee versus Sadducee, or is it leaders versus other rabbi? He loses track of who's who in all of this anyway. He's not interested in these games. But these men know how to push his buttons. And they had gotten Pilate to do their will by claiming that Jesus was a political revolutionary, claiming that Jesus was instigating a rebellion. In Luke chapter 23, verse 2, it says, They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man, but they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. In John chapter 19, John records in verse 12, From then on, Pilate sought to release him, because he was convinced Jesus was innocent. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. You see, these were the magic words. The Jewish leaders got the Roman governor to do their will by making this issue with Jesus a matter of national security and calling into question Pilate's loyalty to the Caesar if he did not put Jesus to death. See, these men were shrewd. They knew how to play the game, but they actually have a few more things they need Pilate to do for them. They're concerned about this idea of a resurrection. You see, Jesus had taught this idea both publicly and privately. In John chapter 2, verse 18, the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus had taught from the beginning that he was going to die and rise again. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
We all know how the Jonah story ends, right? He doesn't stay in the belly of the fish. He gets spit out. And Jesus is indicating that he is not going to stay in the belly of the earth either. Matthew chapter 16, speaking to his disciples, Jesus begins to show them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus has taught this idea of a resurrection in public and in private. Now, of course, the religious leaders thought this idea of resurrection was absurd. Despite the signs that Jesus performed, despite the authoritative teaching, despite his consistent use of scripture, despite the fact that he refuted all of their questions and avoided all of their schemes, they refused to acknowledge him as the Messiah. They considered Jesus a blasphemer, a false prophet. To them, as they told Pilate, he is an imposter, a fraud, a fake. Now, these men may be stubborn, but they aren't dumb. They know that if the word gets out that Jesus has supposedly raised from the dead, they know there's no way to get that genie back into the bottle. There will be no stopping the movement that would result. This fraud, as they call it, would be worse than the first. Because the resurrection would authenticate Jesus as the true Messiah, the Son of God. It would validate everything that Jesus had said. It would validate his message. It would validate his ministry. It would validate the movement, this growing movement of his followers. And it would paint them as the villains. They would be made to seem as the bad guys, the ones who crucified the king of glory. So they're resolved to let no such thing happen. Whatever happens, we can't let people think that this Jesus has risen from the dead. So they make their request here in verse 64. They say, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he is risen from the dead. Send soldiers, they ask. They want to use the power of the state to protect their corrupt agenda. And Pilate, in verse 65, agrees. He says to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as they can. I love that. He says, make it as secure as you can. He says, do your best. And so they did. Verse 66 says they did two things. First of all, they sealed the stone. This was likely a cord that was strung across the stone. It would have been sealed with wax at the ends. It would not have been very difficult to remove physically. But it was official government property. And to tamper with that seal without permission would have been a capital offense. To tamper with that seal would have been a high crime against Rome. And any evidence of tampering with the seal would have been impossible to hide. So they sealed the stone, but they also set a guard. These are armed, trained soldiers that were there to make sure that no fishermen from Galilee sneak in and try to pull off this hoax. If someone was intent on stealing the body, they would not only have to trample on this symbolic authority of Rome by breaking the seal, but they would also have to come through these armed guards. And these men would have been highly dedicated to their orders. Their life would have been forfeit. They would have been put to death if they either abandoned their post or failed in their duties. So this plan is very sound. No fraud, no hoax, no conspiracy will be allowed. There's just one problem with their plan. They have no way of accounting for an actual resurrection. 
And that's what happens. Scene number one is preventing a resurrection conspiracy, but scene number two is this predicament of a resurrection reality. It's a resurrection reality. Look in chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Pilate says, make it as secure as you can. Famous last words, right? They hadn't accounted for a real resurrection. You see, human authorities have power. Rome was the highest authority in the world at that point. But when the delegate from heaven, the angel comes, he does not hesitate to break the seal and roll away the stone. And as much power as Pilate may have, as much power as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priests may have, they're really not the ones who are in charge of what is happening. You see, Jesus has risen as he said. Although he was arrested, although he was falsely accused, although he was put to death, at no point in this entire story has God's power, even for a moment, been thwarted. You see, God actually was using even these wicked and rebellious men, using even Judas in his unbelief, using even Satan in his schemes to accomplish exactly what he intended to do. John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see, no one took Jesus' life from him. He laid it down. In John chapter 19, verse 10, Pilate says to Jesus, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. As Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
You see, the Roman soldiers, the Jewish leaders, even Satan himself are all instruments in the hands of God to accomplish his will. And no security detail is going to stop God's plan to raise his son from the dead. No security detail is going to stop God's plan to exalt his son as the eternal king and to secure salvation for his people. See, this turn of events shows the power and the authority of God. But it also creates quite the predicament, not just for the soldiers, but also for the religious leaders. What are they going to do now? Ironically, the ones trying to prevent a conspiracy in scene number one, we find them, as we enter into the third scene, becoming the conspirators. They go from preventing a conspiracy to starting one. We see them propagating a resurrection conspiracy, verses 11 through 15 in the third scene. It says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. It's hard to fathom, isn't it? The spiritual blindness and the hardness of heart that we see here among these religious leaders. They know the prophecy of resurrection. They take precautions against a hoax. But when it literally happens, and they have eyewitness testimony from witnesses whose very lives are at stake, they still refuse to believe the truth. This is willful unbelief. This is complete spiritual blindness. They assemble together once again, and here we find these leaders resorting to a tactic that they've used before, money. Money had gained them their inside man. They had paid Judas off to betray Jesus. And now they're going to throw more money at this problem to try to make it go away. They're going to pay off the guards. And with this payment comes instruction. Here's how you guys need to spin this. Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Oh, and by the way, if your boss finds out about it, we'll pay him too. We'll keep you out of trouble. These men can't stop Jesus from rising. They can't stop Jesus from walking out of the tomb. They can't stop his followers from believing it. They can't stop his followers from telling other people about it. All they can do is propagate a lie. All they can do is conspire together to subvert the truth. All they can do is engage in this misinformation campaign. Propaganda. Sowing doubt, pushing a counter narrative. That's all they have. That's all they can do. And Matthew points out that this story, this story, like many, that is bought and paid for, was still circulating at the time of Matthew's writing. He says in verse 15, they took the money, did as they were directed, and this story, this conspiracy theory, has been spread among the Jews to this day. Word on the street, word in Jerusalem, word throughout Israel was that the disciples had come and taken the body and faked a resurrection. But here's the irony. 
their efforts to prevent this hoax from taking place actually becomes the key proof that it did take place. These soldiers would not have slept on the job. These soldiers would never have slept through the stone being rolled away. It would have taken multiple people to do this job. It was heavy. It would have made noise. The women could not have done it on their own, so we know that it was a big job. Plus, these men would have been put to death for such a failure. You think they're going to fall asleep on the job? You think they're going to walk 50 yards away where they're not going to hear what's taking place at the entrance to the tomb? In addition, many of these disciples who were accused of stealing the body, they would later die for preaching the gospel. They would lay down their lives. They would go to their grave insisting that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And it's hard for us to believe that these fearful men, these men who had fled when Jesus was arrested, these men who sulked and hid in the shadows following his death, that somehow they became these bold and brave preachers of a resurrection, a resurrection they knew to be a lie. That doesn't make sense. This theory of the resurrection falls so flat. People today have no shortage of other explanations for the empty tomb. Denials of the truth continue to float around today. Some people hold to what is called the swoon theory, believing that Jesus had had simply passed out, that he was maybe in a coma from the trauma of scourging and crucifixion, and that he lost consciousness. But in the coolness of the tomb, maybe he He woke back up, and then he unwrapped himself, and then he rolled away the stone and walked out under his own power. But this can't possibly be true. The Romans were professional executioners. They had perfected the art and science of killing someone as slowly and as deadly as possible. We're told in the Gospels they took a spear and pierced his side, and the blood and the water came out. In addition to the Romans being professional executioners, Jesus couldn't have simply woken up because he had been embalmed by those who loved him and they used about 100 pounds of spices and perfumes. If they were handling his body, do you think they would know if he was still breathing? Do you think they would know if he wasn't cold and stiff? In addition, Jesus had been wrapped tightly with with linen strips and then he was given no medical attention for three days. And then somehow he woke up on his own, unwrapped himself, and moved the stone and walked away, and the soldiers had no idea. It doesn't make sense. Some people say, well, maybe the women who came and and found the tomb empty, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. But that doesn't work either. Chapter 27, verse 61 says these women saw where they laid him. They were sitting there watching the burial. Besides, the, the authorities could have easily debunked Uh, This story, they could have corrected the error by simply pointing to the correct tomb, saying, no, he's not alive. Look, here's the stone. It's still sealed, and the body's inside. We can even look if you want. Besides, as we read earlier in John chapter 20, the disciples went in to check, and they verified the claim. This indeed was the right tomb. Besides, people weren't simply claiming that the tomb was empty. They were claiming to have met the resurrected Jesus. Mary saw him in the garden. The disciples saw him in the upper room. Two disciples saw him on the road to Emmaus. They had breakfast with him on the shores of Galilee. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus was seen by more than 500 eyewitnesses, including some of his own family members. It's more than an empty tomb. There's an encounter with the living, resurrected Jesus. 
Some try to counter this claim by saying, well, maybe this is a hallucination. You know, maybe these disciples and, and his family members, they were so overwhelmed by grief, they were so delirious with this, this, this emotion of wanting to see him again that, that maybe those chemicals in their brain and wishful thinking caused them to hallucinate and they thought they saw Jesus. But the Gospels tell us that these men were not delirious with grief. It says they went home. Some of them actually went back to work, fishing, normal daily duties. Besides, if something is a product of your own emotions and something that's a figment of your own imagination, if it's something going on in your own brain, well, that's a personal, private experience. But Jesus appeared to groups. He was seen by many at the same time. And groups of people don't share the same hallucination. And it's not an isolated occurrence. It kept happening in the garden, in the upper room, on the Sea of Galilee, on the road to Emmaus. This is no hallucination. Some counter this argument with, well, maybe they're seeing the spirit of Jesus. They're seeing his ghost, not his resurrected body. The problem is you can't cling to a spirit like Mary Magdalene clung to Jesus in John 20, 17. Spirits don't invite you to touch their scars, like Jesus invites Thomas in John chapter 20 to, to touch his hands and put his hand in his side. Spirits don't cook breakfast and eat fish with you on the beach. What those people encountered was a real, physical, resurrected Jesus. Some, in a last-ditch effort to explain away the resurrection, will say, well, maybe this is an imposter. Maybe this is someone, one of the disciples, for example, that, you know, kind of looked like Jesus and was able to pose as a resurrected Jesus. The problem is that an imposter who's not Jesus can't miraculously enter a room when the doors are locked, like Jesus did. An imposter could not fill their nets with fish while they're fishing on the Sea of Galilee like Jesus did, performing this miracle over nature. An imposter could not ascend visibly into heaven like Jesus did in Acts chapter 1. And no imposter could have inspired these disciples to go take the gospel to the nations and sacrifice their lives for his sake. No, this is the resurrected Jesus. You see, the Jewish leaders and others today may propagate these resurrection conspiracies and others like them. But all of these supposed explanations that deny the resurrection of Jesus, to use a very technical theological term, they're lame. They're unconvincing. They don't work. The best explanation is the one given to us by the four gospel authors. That on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, just as he said he would. Matthew says this conspiracy theory of the Jewish leaders spread, chapter 27, verse 15. But the exciting truth is that that's not the only story that spread. It's not the only story that spread. In Acts chapter 1, we find the ascension of the risen Christ into heaven. The disciples watch him go, and then they go. They go as his witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And everywhere they go, do you know what story they spread? That Jesus rose from the grave. Peter's famous sermon on the day of Pentecost features the resurrection. He declares the power of Jesus over death and shows that this resurrection is the fulfillment of what David prophesied back in Psalm 16. 
And it's not just this one sermon. Luke says that the resurrection was the heartbeat of the message and ministry of all the apostles. Acts chapter 4, verse 33 says, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And it doesn't stop there. Stephen saw the glorified Jesus as he's being put to death in Acts chapter 7. Peter preaches the resurrection to Gentiles when he's in the house of Cornelius. In Acts 10, 39, Peter says, We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who'd been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. The apostles are spreading this story. Paul would later meet the glorified, resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus and and go from being an antagonist of the gospel to one of its loudest proponents. And he would preach the resurrection. In Acts 13, verse 32 and 33, Paul says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As the followers of Jesus take the gospel around the world, you know what happens? The worst fears of the Jewish leaders comes true. People believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I wonder what these men would say, I wonder what they would think to know that 2,000 years later, people all around the world in churches like ours, small and large, would be gathering together because we believe the true story, that Jesus did rise from the dead. The conspiracy failed. The propaganda failed. The lie failed to triumph over the truth. The simple truth I want you to take home today is this is that in the resurrection, Jesus triumphs, and he triumphs not only over sin, not only over death, not only over Satan. In the resurrection, Jesus triumphs over the lies and the conspiracies of men. They cannot stop him from rising, and they cannot stop this truth from spreading throughout the world and through every generation until Christ returns. Easter is a day to rejoice that Jesus triumphs over lies. Perhaps you look around you today, Christian, and perhaps at times you're tempted towards fear, tempted towards anxiety. You are troubled because everywhere you look, you see wicked men who have lots of money, who have lots of influence, who have access to power, And you see them conspiring against the truth. You see them distorting the truth. You see them propagating lies and deceiving many. And you're tempted to wring your hands and be troubled and say, what shall we do? What are the righteous to do? I have one very simple word of encouragement to you today. See the empty tomb and believe Take courage, take heart. The truth will win. And Christ will triumph. He always does. I'd like to conclude by reading from Psalm 
2, the second psalm. I invite you to turn there with me. I think Psalm 2 captures the spirit that should mark us as we celebrate the resurrection today. In the second psalm, we find these words. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against, or the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Believer, blessed are you when you take refuge in him. The Lord's anointed, the one who has been resurrected, the one who has been given the nations as his inheritance, because he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the conspiracies and the vain plots of man will actually serve to accomplish God's perfect will. Let's continue to tell this true story of the resurrection to those who are in need of salvation. Let's keep trusting that in time, God will accomplish all his sovereign purpose to exalt his son and to save those who trust in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him because the triumph of Christ in the resurrection is a triumph over death. It's a triumph over sin. It's a triumph over Satan. And it is also a triumph over the lies and the conspiracies of men. Let's rejoice in that victory today. Father, we thank you that as we read your word, we find everything we need to be fully convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, that he did die for our sin, that he rose triumphantly from the dead, and that all your promises are true. Lord, may we be bold and confident in believing that truth today. And as we go from here, entering into a world that is still marked by wicked conspiracy, lies, propaganda, Lord, let us not be fearful. Pray that you would help us to be bold and confident and to engage boldly in proclaiming the true truth, the truth of who Jesus is, what he has accomplished, and that he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Lord, for we who believe, I ask that we would be strengthened today. And Lord, for any who are not yet believers in the truth of the gospel, 
May they recognize this morning their need for Christ, their need for forgiveness, their need to repent of their rebellion against the risen Christ. And I pray that they would put their trust in Jesus, that they would submit to him and follow him in faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.